This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Been a very wet day. It's been raining here pretty much nonstop all day long. Yeah, it's raining here, too, and super windy. Wow. We don't usually both have weather at the same time. This is nuts. Welcome to the West Coast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to be boring and talk about the weather. We need to get right into this one because there's a lot of shit going on in this episode. Yeah, there sure is. And if we babble on too long, we might have to cut it into two parts, which I'm sorry and I hate, but you don't want to listen to us talk for two hours straight. I don't want to listen to us talk for two hours straight. I don't want to talk for two hours straight. Yep. All right. Well, let's get into this Jimothy Jones. (laughs) Jimothy? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great office reference that's kind of subtle, right under the radar. I love it. Jim? Yeah. James? (laughs) Jimothy? (laughs) So we're going to start at the beginning to figure out where this lunatic came from. Wackadoodle? Yeah, and the warning signs so that we can try to avoid this whole catastrophe in the future. So Jim Jones' parents, James T. Jones and Lynetta Jones, were a poor couple living in Crete, Indiana in 1931 when James Warren Jones was born. Now, Jim's mother, Lynetta, was a strange bird. Yeah. She kind of danced to the beat of her own drum, so to speak. Which I dig. I do dig that about her. But yeah, she was a little bit out there, but it was kind of yeah. fun. She yeah. reminds me of another friend we have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, She was raised in a wealthy family who lost their status somehow. And she set out to marry rich. Like she was very open about this. Like, I'm just going to get married and be taken care of. Could they have lost their status like during the depression? Because this wasn't much before that. Yeah. Well, it was because she was married twice before Jim Jones's dad. Oh, okay. It was more like in the early 20s, so I don't know what happened there. And I didn't really go that. That is such a minor part of this story. I didn't want to get into that rabbit hole. For the record, if I was going to get married a second time, it, it would probably be for money this, this yeah, time around. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, always for money the second time. Hmm, I don't know fair. what I did, but. <laughs> <laughs> you fine. make it yourself, baby. You don't need an old man. Matt's around because oh, yeah. you want Matt around. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what I tell him, too. So (laughs) anyway, this Lynetta, she had this mindset that she had lived all these past lives and that she was like this great person and really successful and an author and super smart. And she was known to make up these wild stories and be like loud and obnoxious. And like I said, she was married twice before Jim's dad and divorced twice, which was like a huge no, no in the 20s. Oh, absolutely. I'm surprised she did do it twice. Or three times, but... Yeah, and I'm not sure why the first two didn't work. Maybe because she was a little wackadoodle, or maybe because they weren't rich enough. I don't know. Or they didn't take care of her the way she wanted. Not sure. But when she married Jim's dad, James, she thought he would take care of her, or at least his family would. 
because his parents had put the down payment on their house and farm in Crete, Indiana, which is where they had little Jimmy Jones in 1931. Jimmy Jones. Yeah, and Lynetta would say that he was a great man destined for great things, like even as a baby, because he came from her after all, and she was great <laughs> in all of her past lives, so why this wouldn't he like, be great? This is like Kanye before Kanye. Yeah, obviously mental illness runs in this family, is what yeah, we're getting clearly. at here. right. Yeah, hereditary. <laughs> so things start to go downhill quickly as this is the Great Depression, and James was a World War I vet who had physical and possibly mental issues from the war. And he may have had some substance abuse issues too. We're not 100% sure on that, but he didn't work and he lived on disability. So that doesn't make for a great provider. Income? Yeah. Yeah. So being disabled, he couldn't run a farm and Lynetta couldn't run a farm or wouldn't. And either way, they lost this farm that his parents had bought for them. And they had to move in with James's family in Lynn, Indiana. Lynetta was very vocal about how unhappy she was. And his family was very clear, like, we don't really care how unhappy you are. Like, we're helping you. We're taking care of you. She wanted to be taken care of. I mean, Lynn, Indiana isn't really known for its, you know, high society social life. So, you know, like, that seems like a weird place to think that, oh, I'm going to be taken care of and do just fine here. Right. And his family was very adamant that once Jimmy was at an age where she didn't need to take care of him so much, like he wasn't so little, that she needed to get a job and contribute to the household. And so she did. <laughs> well, I mean, they were taking care of her and her kid and her husband, who was their kid. So it's like, of course, she's got to go get a job. Like, yeah, everybody's got to work. So she got a job at a factory, a local factory. I don't know what they did. They made glass or something. Windows? I don't know. Stained glass, I hope. Yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. I love Even... stained glass windows. Yeah, they're beautiful. We should get mm. in. We should take a stained glass class. Okay. Even before she got a job, but especially afterwards, she was not very involved in the guiding or raising of little Jimmy Jones because- <laughs> I like when you call him little Jimmy Jones. Well, at this point, he's a baby. He's not a monster yet. I know, but I just like the, like the way you say it, just little Jimmy Jones. Yeah. Well, and I'm trying to differentiate between him and his dad, because his dad is also Jim Jones. But obviously his parents didn't give him a lot of attention, besides Lynetta, like not thinking she had to raise him because he was going to be this great man, no matter how bad of a person, bad of a mom she was, he was going to be great. But his father didn't give him a lot of attention either. So Jim was kind of a wanderer. Even at a young age, he would just kind of do his own thing, like five or six years old, and he would just walk around town. And he learned how to manipulate people at this very young age to get what he wanted. Older women in the community would feel bad for him that he was just kind of like walking around after school with no parents to care. And they would invite him in for a meal or a snack or whatever. And he would tell them how it was the best food he's ever eaten and nobody cooks better than they do. And he would just have them wrapped around his little finger in five minutes. Sounds exactly right. Yeah, for his personality. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, right in line. Yeah, and so mostly everybody in the town that he grew up in was religious. They would go to church on Sundays, and it was just kind of what you did. But his parents were not religious. But for some reason, Jim started going to church with some of these women that would take him in and give him snacks and stuff. And he became obsessed with religion and death 
for some reason. He would perform funeral services for, like, neighborhood pets and roadkill. Well, I was going to say, I heard it was roadkill, too. Like, he was, like, picking yeah. stuff up. Like, and your own pets, I think, is a pretty normal thing. And, I mean, yeah, even neighborhood pets, okay. Like, weird, honestly, but, like, okay. But starting picking up roadkill and stuff, like, that's immediately what you don't want. <laughs> you know, like, you try to stay away from that at all costs. Yeah, and Although, he would have, like, I do the have a squirrel kids. in my house right now that we're trying to nurse back to health, so who am I to talk? Yeah, we need to talk about that after the show, by the way. <laughs> anyway. I named him Nuts, by the way, for anyone wondering. Okay. But he would also, like, make kids sit for these funeral services for, like, hours. And what? He would just preach I didn't at hear them. that part. I missed that. Yeah. That's, dude, that's so weird. Yeah, until they would get irritated and they'd be like, this is dumb, and they would leave, and then he would get really upset when they left, which is a whole nother foreshadowing for his <laughs> personality later on. Yeah, you're very right. Yeah, so he would also have, like, neighborhood kids, they would get together and they would break into, like, the local funeral home. Oh, my God. I don't know what they thought they were going to do, but Jim would have them lay in the caskets, which the other kids were like, hey... This isn't fun anymore. Hell no. No. So they started not hanging out with Jim so much, and he kind of became an outsider because they were like, eh, little Jimmy's weird. He carries around a Bible. He does funeral services. He makes us lay in caskets. Like, he's kind of creepy. Yeah. It's all very weird. I got invited to go into that mortuary, that Shannon's mortuary, mm-hmm. like, to see the bodies like at the during the street fair, and I was like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with that, like, ever. Yeah. I, that's another story we're going to have to talk about after this. <laughs> I did go, but I was Well, invited. yeah, but why would somebody offer that? Okay, anyway. Yeah, that was weird. That is weird. So, Jim, little Jimmy didn't care that he was an outsider. He was really into religion. And he would go to all different kinds of services all over town. Sometimes he would go to two different church services in the same Sunday. Like, he'd sit through the early service at one church and then hustle his way across town and sit through the later service at a different church. As somebody who has spent almost their entire life sitting through church services, one is more than enough. A plenty. So as Jim grew up, now we're getting into like World War II. Other kids are playing soldiers and G.I. Joes. And he always wanted to play Hitler. Oh, okay. wow. Yeah, and it was because he thought Hitler was an amazing leader and public speaker. He really admired how he, like, captivated his audience and really motivated people with his speaking. He wasn't super into the racism part of Hitler. In fact, he was vehemently against racism. Yeah. Like, really against it. And he was super big proponent of civil rights and racial integration and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, he really idolized Hitler's leadership that's crazy i know he read a ton of books on like hitler and stalin mussolini and and gandhi of all people like he also read gandhi too and and it was because he thought these people were fantastic leaders yeah (laughs) there's some major issues there (laughs) maybe not with gandhi of course but like there's definitely some major issues there well especially because one of the things that he admired about hitler was that he committed suicide at the end instead of letting his own enemies capture him Allegedly. Well, yeah, but he really thought that was like the noble way to go. Does that make sense? Um, it makes sense for the story. It doesn't make sense in like life, but no, yeah, not in here, real life. But here it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
So as he got older and he was trying to figure out what he wanted to be when he grew up, he really zoned in on being a preacher because religion was so important to him. And he wanted that same respect and admiration that Hitler and Stalin and all these people had, whether they forced it or whatever is a whole nother problem. But his ego was such that he needed people to follow him. Like, he didn't want people to follow him. He needed them. Yeah. It was a burning desire. Yeah. So he was naturally drawn to the Pentecostal church specifically because they were very high energy, big drama, really put on a show kind of girls, you know? Speaking in tongues and whatnot, right? Yes. Fire and, and brimstone f- kind of stuff, yeah. Yes, and they would do the faith healings and the... Snake bites and whatnot. Yes, snakes, and they'd smack you on the back of the head and be like, you can walk now, idiot. Like Rafiki. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So... He loved that people admired and looked up to their pastors, and he really believed in them, even if they were wild ideas. Like, he admired, like, the more wild a Pentecostal preacher was and all the snakes and all this stuff, the more outlandish it was, and people still believed the person. He was like, that guy's great. Like, he can get people to believe this banana stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, he really admired that. So Jim and his mother, Lynetta, would eventually move to Richmond, Indiana, when she left his father, who died shortly after she left him. And while they were in Richmond, which was a much bigger city, he realized he needed to learn how to gain a following, you know, a a congregation if he wanted to be a preacher. Don't they kind of set that up for you? Like when you go through seminary and stuff, like you go through the proper channels and they like are like, hey, you're hired. And he's like, hey, look. Instant, instant following. Right. But we all know Jim wants his own following. He doesn't want to, like, inherit a church that's already there. So he saw the civil rights issues of the time. And whether he believed in them or not is kind of debated. But a lot of people think he really did believe in them. But he also saw an opportunity to take advantage of it. So he went into the black neighborhoods of a city and just started standing on the street And preaching about inequality and oppression, and he really honed in on what worked with them and what didn't work. Well, and I imagine, too, like at this time, a white guy speaking about, you know, racial inequality and trying to stick up for voters or uh, voters' rights, I guess. and Human rights, yeah. Human rights, rights. yeah, all, all kind of, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that probably was not typical of that time and no. probably caught a lot of people's attention and were like, hey, maybe this guy, you know, is onto something. Yeah, eventually he would earn a lot of respect. Like, he was semi-successful with this, at least towards the end, because he did get the respect in that community that he was seeking because he would get stuff done. He would volunteer. He would help people who need it. He would do things like he would take action when other people would just talk about stuff. He would actually take action and do something about it. And he really gained a lot of respect from them. At this time, he also got a job at a hospital and he was working as an orderly at night and he was loved at work. They said he was like his work ethic was above and beyond. He was super respectful, but... He was only getting a couple hours of sleep every night and still functioning normally. He could naturally function on just very little sleep because he was going to high school during the day and then working at this hospital at night. Like his heart is in the right place, you know, like at least to start, like he's trying to do good. He's trying to, you know, 
make a positive impact, a positive difference in yeah. in the community. And, you know, so like yeah. on the surface level of this, you're like, hell yeah, like what a good dude. And then yeah. things take a turn. But for now, it's yeah. like, wow, like things are going <laughs> great. Like he's a really good kid. But it was clear from an early age that he had issues with rejection. And so a lot of it is that he needs to be <laughs> just like Hitler. Wanted. <laughs> yeah. So he needed people to like and follow him. And it was no difference when he got older and started dating. He would fixate on a girl and not quit until she dated him. One of these women ended up being Marceline Baldwin. Did this work? Like he would fix in on them and then they would end up dating him? Did, did this work yes. often? Eventually he would talk. Well, we're going to find out because Marceline marries him. So, Man, I, yeah. I've never heard of like that working you know like infatuation yeah. typically doesn't lead to a positive yeah well i don't know that it did ever before her but but it did this time yeah one of these women was marceline baldwin and she was a nurse at the hospital that he was an orderly at and she was four years older than him so how old is he at this time he's like in high school or just out of high school oh okay yeah, and so her family was well-liked in the community. They were pillars of the community. Her dad was involved in politics. They were respected, very connected. But they were also religious. And Jim set his sights on Marcy, and she was reluctant. She was like, no, this kid, he's got a crush on me. It's no." She was four years older than him. But he persisted and persisted, and his religion and his commitment to his faith was what really attracted her to him eventually. And was she white or was she black? Marcy, his wife, she's white. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I thought. That's what I thought I remembered. But, you know, with everything else, like, you know, he's, he's really making a name for himself in the black community at this, at this time. Right. And she, like I said, she was really reluctant, but he persisted. And finally, she would give in. I mean, he won her over by telling her all these made up stories about how he had stood up for civil rights and, you know, got off buses and walked because they would make black people sit in the back and left restaurants without eating because they wouldn't let his black friends sit with him or got up in the middle of a haircut and walked out of a barber shop with half of his head cut because they turned away a black customer. Like, because she was a very loving and good person then too. And she, all these things were like, man, he is an amazing man. Like she thought he was really cool and that he was a really good guy. Yeah, I mean, at this point, he probably had all the best of intentions. Yeah. So eventually she fell for him, and in 1949, they got married. So he's 18, like right out of high school. And she was what he needed. She knew how to be socially graceful, and he was not. He was kind of brash and bold. You know, his parents didn't really teach him a lot of manners. Like, everything he had learned was just from watching other people. So she really polished him up a little bit to be able to, like, rub elbows with a higher status of connected people. Sure. And at the beginning, kind of like Christine has done for you a little bit. <laughs> so, just kidding. Yeah, she has. But at the beginning of their marriage, Jim was living in Bloomington, Indiana, going to law school. And Marcy was living in Richmond still with her family. And Jim would come home on the weekends to see her. And one of these weekends, he got in, like, a huge fight with her family, and he took Marcy, and they left. And he thought her family was racist and awful, and he literally kept them away from her until her family finally gave in and apologized to him for whatever this fight was about. Well, I mean, were they racist and awful? Like, No. And she learned really quickly 
that he wouldn't back down. Whether he was right or wrong, he was stubborn and thick-headed. And she was learning that really fast into their marriage. How long did they date before they got married? I don't know. That's That that part I haven't really been able to settle in, but it couldn't have been very long. Well, I was going to say- they got married I mean, when he was 18. Well, and you typically learn that somebody is, uh, you know, thick-headed fairly early on, too. So to find that out, you know, in the midst of your marriage- you know, Well, we probably... do now because people live together before they're married. Yeah, I guess, Back then, okay. they yeah. didn't even live together after they were married because Jim was still in college and she lived with her parents. So- I don't think they knew each other very well. <laughs> yeah, ex that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah, I don't think so either. Exactly. So this marriage is starting out on a great foot. You know, he literally like took her from her family and was like, you can't be around them until they apologize. You know what I mean? Just marital bliss. <laughs> so the icing on the cake for Marcy was when Jim tells her that he actually doesn't believe in God and that he's an atheist, which was devastating for Marcy because... She was very religious, and she was super duper under the impression that Jim was too, since he talked about it all the time and had plans to become a preacher at some point. But at this point in the late 40s, early 50s, she doesn't divorce him. She decides to stick it out and not leave him because divorce was pretty frowned upon still, and she thought he was just having like a crisis of faith or something, and he'd come around. I mean, he was literally preaching on the street corner last year, you know? Yeah. So she's like, You're, you can't be an atheist. Like, you've been the weird Bible guy your whole life. How are, Why are you telling me now you don't believe in God? So this is kind of a rough start for them. But at this point, Jim's in law school, and he starts to get way more into politics and civil rights It's than crazy religion. that he even went to, yeah, it's weird he even went to law school, you know? Like, he was so into the the Bible thing and, like, the religion thing, you know? Like, you would think that... That would have been his first stop, or at least, you know, before he did anything yeah. else, he would have gone to that instead of going to law school. But I think he was young, and he wanted to try out different things. I've heard a lot of stories that he thought about being a doctor for a while, because working at the hospital, he saw how much respect doctors got. Mm. And then he wanted to be a pilot, because back in these times, pilots were like the ish, you know, and they got a lot of respect. So he just really wanted a job where people respected him and looked up to him. And I think he was just trying out different things. He obviously would never end up becoming a lawyer, so this didn't go on for very long. But while he's in law school, he gets way more into politics and civil rights than religion. Like, he kind of backs away from the preacher thing. He gets really into the Communist Party and socialism, which was a hot topic at this time. Super hot it topic. Yeah, we're right at the beginning of the Cold War. Everybody's scared of communist Russia. Most people, even if they were communist sympathizers, they were pretty shut the fuck up about it because you didn't want to be labeled a communist at all. <laughs> I mean, you still don't really want to be labeled a communist, well, no, but course. at that time it was like a big deal to even like have that sniffed around, you know? Like people were right. real weird about that. Yeah. But Jim wasn't he loved the shock factor of it. He would openly go to communist meetings and rallies. He was like proud. And he would even like debate. There'd be like government officials that would like watch these rallies and like take notes and try to like see who's at them and stuff. And he'd just walk right up to them and start arguing with them, like trying to debate <laughs> them. This is a theme with Jim that we'll find out throughout his life. He needs attention. And if you don't agree with him, you're against him. 
Like, that's his mentality. Like, he can't be like, well, you like purple and I like blue, so we could just stand next to each other. He's like, you like blue? Let's go to war about it. Yeah. <laughs> like I got you. Yeah. So he was into racial integration and equal rights, stuff like that. And he was going to make some real social change. And all of these things are good. Like, this is what he's standing for. But Jim had no money and even less clout or power. So, like I said, he had all these dreams of doing all these great things, but he had no way to get them done. So in the early 50s, he decided that he could use religion and his religious background to gain a following and he could preach communism and socialism like to all of his congregation instead of religion. Like he'd hook them with religion and then switch them. (laughs) The old bait and switch. (laughs) Yeah. So he became a student pastor at a Methodist church that recently decided to integrate, like racially integrate. And Jim got right back into it. He would go to services at the local black churches, find out what the black community needed, what they wanted to become part of their integrated church. You know, like he was really trying to to make waves in that way. And this is all wonderful. Even Marcy's like super happy. He's back. You know, she's like, oh, my God, this guy that... You know, he's finally exactly. back. He's on the up and up. Yep. His I'm an atheist phase is over and he's literally becoming a pastor again. She's like, oh my goodness. Like, who made it through that. So he was also learning what the plight was of the black community so that he could better exploit them in the future. He didn't tell them that, though. He was just learning what their worries and their problems were so that later on he could use that to get him (laughs) that's that's evil yeah so he used what he learned from them and went into the community and helped with things that were on the top of their list he really gained their trust as wanting to help them and he did do a lot of good in the community and he helped people in a profound way like he was a man of action not just words he didn't just get up there and was like we should have equal rights for everybody he would force it like he would go out into the community and be like, what's your problem today? And like this older black lady tells a story about how the electric company cut her lights off and she had been trying for three days to call them to get them to turn her lights back on because it was an error. It wasn't like she didn't pay her bills and she wasn't getting anywhere. She had no power for like three days. And within like 30 minutes, Jim got her power turned back on. Like he was doing real things, you know? Yeah. So he was forcing this change and people really liked that and they really believed in that but he needed more so he started touring on the revival circuit he would go to these cities and like set up this big tent kind of like a traveling circus and he would just preach to the crowd but just like a circus these people wanted a show and they were super into faith healings and these were really popular at the time so jim got super into them And the crowds would go wild and it would drum up donations and new members for his church. And he was healing people in wheelchairs, the blind, everyone just smacking him on the back of the head and they were healed. He even was ripping cancer out of people's mouths. Yeah. Way to go, Jim. Way to get it. Obviously, he wasn't doing any of this. He (laughs) literally was putting rotten chicken organs in people's mouths and then pulling it out. And some of the people that he brought with him were plants, like, so that he would say, like, oh, they're in a wheelchair, and then they really weren't, and they would get up and walk, obvious stuff, you know. And then sometimes he would literally just eavesdrop 
on conversations that people were having at these events. And then when he would get up on stage, he'd pinpoint those people out and then tell them something about themselves that he had overheard. And they really thought he could read minds. The old Sylvia Brown technique. Yeah. They literally thought he had some sort of special power. So some of the people on these shows were in on it with him. Like they knew he was a fraud, but the way he explained it to them was sometimes you have to do bad things to make good things happen. And they had to fake these to get the donations and the members to keep making progress in their other really good adventures. Isn't that kind of like a mob mentality? Isn't that like kind of similar to what they say? Yeah, like the good outweighs the bad. Yeah. So some of them knew, but some of them didn't know. And one of the stories that I heard about this was there was a lady in a um, that had a broken leg in a cast, and he literally cut her cast off and was like, walk, now run, and then she like ran. And it turns out they had drugged her the day before, oh. put the cast on her while she was out. When she came to, they told her that she had broken her leg, and then Jim Jones healed her. So when he cut her wow. cast off and was like, run, she could run because she didn't really have a broken leg. She was like, this is great. Yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that was going on. It was really wacky. But this was a really smart move, though, on Jim's part, because telling some of the people and not telling some of the people ended up coming in handy later because it gave these people an excuse when he did something they didn't like or they didn't believe in or they didn't believe that he even believed they could rationalize it in their heads as, yeah, obviously that's bullshit, but sometimes you have to do bad stuff to get the good result. Like, he was ingraining that in his people really early on. So they could justify shit in their head that should not have been justifiable. Yeah. So at this point, he's becoming really successful. He's gaining a lot of followers and attention. So he split with the Methodist church. Remember you were saying, like, you should get in with a real church? Well, he did, and he was a student pastor. But at this point, he was becoming so popular He was like, well, I don't need that Methodist church that's trying to give me all these rules about what I can and can't do. So in 1955, he started his own church. And this church was small at first. And he worked as a door-to-door monkey salesman while he was establishing it. A what? A door-to-door monkey salesman. He sold spider monkeys, like, door-to-door. No. Yeah, swear to you. What? How did you even, like... How do you get that job, and why isn't it a job now? Because I would probably take a spider monkey if <laughs> if someone came to my door with oh, one. 100%. How would you say no? <laughs> I There's not really a way that I would. No, you'd be like, Marcel? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rally monkey, is that you? But Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a squirrel here. Like we said, Like obviously I'm just willing to take anything that shows up. Yeah. So while he's establishing this church, you know this is a banana story when- we're There's just going to breeze involved. right by the fact that yeah. he was a monkey salesman. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So he called this new church that he started Community Unity, which I hate. I hate everything about that name. I don't know why. What was it called again? The first? It's called Community Unity. Com- oh, Community Unity? Yeah. <sighs> I think I dig it. I think Community oh, Unity. Oh, I hate it. I think it's so bad that it's kind of good. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So he was continuing to travel and put on these shows and gain followers and donations. He was still doing great things in the community to help the poor and oppressed. Like, he was really forcing this where he would, like, walk into restaurants. He would tell them that he had a party of 30. And it'd be a really slow time at the restaurant where they were totally empty, you know. And they'd be like, oh, sure, Mr. Jones. And they'd set up the 
table for 30 and then he would have his entire black congregation come in and then they would have to turn him down. And he would be like, you're going to turn down all this money for your business. There's nobody in here, you know, so they would eventually let them eat there. And then he would tell people like, this restaurant's great. They serve black people. Like he was really like trying to help the community like move along in this integration thing. And that's kind of the evil thing of it all. Like he is trying to be useful and he ends up being extremely (laughs) opposite. Yeah, but that's the big argument. Did he really believe it or was he doing it because he knew it would get him followers? So I don't know. We'll see. But by 1956, community unity was growing so (laughs) fast. I just don't even like to say it, which is good. This is the last time I have to. I don't know. It's stupid. Would you prefer unity community? Hey, we're part of the unity community. No. No. So. I'm telling you, I would join a cult. I would. I'd probably join Oh, you would fall for this shit in a heartbeat. I know. The whole time I was researching this, I'm like, Grant would have been a People's Temple member if he was alive. The whole time you're like I was a little bit communist, like, a little bit socialist. No, like, I'm not communist. I'm social. <laughs> I'm, I'm socialist. Okay. Yeah. Which is well, it's not the we'll same. Find out thing. how well that it's worked out the for these thing. people. <laughs> According to Jim Jones, it might be. Well, so okay. Well, this we're not basing our opinions <laughs> off of what Jim Jones thinks. Okay. So anyway, remember to be nicer to me. Unity. Don't forget, you're supposed to be nicer to me. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Okay. I'll be nice. <laughs> Thank you. So by by 1956, this community unity was growing so fast, they had to move to a bigger facility. So they moved into this old Jewish temple. Jim was like, hey, I kind of like that temple deal. So he changed the name of community unity, thank God, to the People's <laughs> Temple. I don't like that. Well, I don't like that it's not really proper grammar or anything. Like, there's no apostrophe, so it's not like it's like the people's temple the the people's court yeah it's really stupid i don't i don't like it but that is what it is so he didn't ask us i would have not been invited to this cult anyway (laughs) right (laughs) you wouldn't you would have questioned everything i would have been like well i mean we're not racist and uh, everyone gets to share so this is going great yeah Well, after a while, Jim realized they needed more money because all of their followers were poor and oppressed, so their donations were not enough to keep this whole operation going. He had a whole church of people who needed help, but not anybody who could help. Yeah, totally. But his followers were good people who wanted to do good things, and what they couldn't donate in money, they donated with time and effort. They really put a lot into this church. And Joan still needed to make money, though. So him and Marcy saw there was a need for affordable senior living facilities in the area because they were all terrible. They mistreated elderly people. It was horrible. So they started letting elderly people live with them. And Marcy was a nurse, so this worked out. They treated them super well, and it was more of like a family atmosphere. And in turn, these elderly people who they were taking care of would turn over all of their income to the church because they were taken care of, so they didn't care. And eventually they saw the financial benefits to this and decided to open up assisted living homes where the residents were actually treated well and treated like a family in a home instead of like a burden. And these were really, really successful, but it also gave Jim the ability to give members of his community that were poor and needed jobs, jobs. He was helping the community in that way too. He was giving his people jobs. Totally. I mean, and that's again like, part of his appeal on all this like he's yeah 
very he's uniting the community. Some might yep. call it community unity, you know. Yeah, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he's also gaining power over these people because now he's not only their spiritual leader, he's also their boss. <laughs> he's he's gaining a lot of power over people. But these assisted living homes were very successful and they gave him the ability to do even more good things in the community. They opened up a soup kitchen where you could come and eat a meal for free, and they took in a lot of clothing donations and handed them out at these soup kitchens. They started a daycare for people who couldn't afford childcare while they were working. Just a free daycare. The People's Temple at this time was a really wonderful thing for this community. It sounds wonderful. I mean, it sounds like they're really changing these people's lives for... Right, which is how he got these people to really believe in him, because he was becoming real popular. Oh, for sure. How could he not be? Yeah. So with his communist and socialist, you know, mindset, he started having his members or followers sign over more and more of their possessions and their paychecks to the church. And then he would redisperse the funds more evenly to everybody. And they would get back what they needed for their bills and things like that. And then the rest would be used to go back into the community and help poor people. And it was really what these people wanted at this time. They were they were willingly giving their, their stuff to the church for the church to redistribute it. Like a yard sale. Yeah. Like a communist socialist commune. <laughs> yeah, like a yard sale. Yeah, so he was using the extra money to do all this good stuff and everybody was on board and more and more people were flocking to the church by the day because they were like, look at what he's doing with all this good that he's doing, you know. But eventually, as with anybody in power, Jim Jones started to skim a little off the top. He started <laughs> buying nicer clothes for himself and furnishing his house with nicer stuff. Meanwhile, everybody is supposed to be the same, you know. Everybody's supposed to have the same shit. That's the whole deal. Like the supreme leader. Yeah. So by this time, all these people literally think he's a saint. So everybody kind of lets this pass. They're like, well, yeah, he's our God. So he could buy nice clothes and we can't. It's like, okay. So Jim and Marcy at this time decide to start a family because Marcy wanted a family. And I think Jim wanted the look of a family. It is a nice look for a a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And they wanted to portray equality even in their personal life. They decided to adopt a Native American daughter they named Agnes. And then they adopted three Korean daughters, Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. And then they had a biological son that they named Stephen, but it's spelled like Stephanie without the I-E. Like Stephen? Well, it's, it's Stephen, but it's spelled like Stephanie because their daughter Stephanie had died oh. before Stephen was born. And Stephen's middle name is Gandhi, by the way. Stephen Gandhi <laughs> Jones. Those go together really well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's Stephen Gandhi. Yeah. Yeah. Then they adopted a black son and named him Jim Jones Jr. Hmm. And they were actually the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black baby. Isn't it kind of weird when, like, they have a couple sons already and, like, the last one gets hit, like, the dad's name? I've always wondered why that was. Like... How come the first yeah. one didn't have the dad's name? Like, if you're going to give it to him, you know. It's... And the first one was their biological son, too. Yeah. I mean, not that that should matter, but like. But you would think you know. that, I mean, that yeah. could, you know, I could see that. Yeah. Did they not adopt yeah. a and... boy named Lou? Wasn't there a Lou boy? Lou is a girl, and I oh. already mentioned her. She was one of the three Korean girls. Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne, remember? 
Yeah, I just I thought one I thought Lou was a boy. No, she's a girl. And Jim Jones Jr. was not his you said his youngest son. He wasn't. There was multiple sons after Jim Jones Jr. They also adopted a boy named Timothy Jones. Was there a boy named Sue? No. <sighs> Dang it. No, but then he would have more children later on. So and they were all boys. So it, Jim Jones Jr. was kinda like in the middle. So you're right, it's weird. He's not the oldest and he's not the youngest. It's kinda like just plucked him out. Well, it's like they had the first one, and they, then they're like, you know what we should have done? <sighs> next time. <laughs> next time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or it was like Jim was going for a specific look about equality and all this stuff, so he's like, oh, I'm going to give my black son my name. Mm. A lot of people think that it was for show. I didn't think about that, but I mean, that would make kind of a lot of sense considering what he's got going on. Exactly. So they called their family the Rainbow Family. Obviously, because they're all different colors. So this looked wonderful from the outside, this rainbow family. But even his own children have claimed now that it seems like even back then this was all for show. Like he didn't really want kids or love them. It was all a look he was going for. Yeah, I, I believe that. You know, and because there's something that's not alarming about a man with a wife and kids. Like automatically... You know, they're, it's disarming. It's yep. totally disarming, you know, and like that's uh, probably what he was going for, which makes this even more crazy because of how much thought and detail goes into this. This wasn't just a one off like, hey, I'm just going to do that. Like he was like, what can I do to oh, make yeah, it was very calculated? Totally, man. That's what's crazy about this dude. Yep. So so by this time, Jones is a real popular guy. Like I said, he's making a bunch of headway and desegregating this area, but he's letting all this power go to his head, which is obvious. And he starts to create like this, he's more famous or more important than he really is, is environment. And he starts to get really paranoid. That paranoia didn't really exist. Like people weren't after him. But for some reason, he tried to make his his congregation and his followers and his members feel like somebody was after him. And a lot of people think, think that this was a power play, like to gain their sympathy. Like people are more willing to like get behind you if they believe in you and they're fighting against something rather than just being with you to be with you. So he would pretend that people were out to assassinate him and shit. He would set up fake shootings. When he'd be out in public, he'd have, like, somebody shoot blanks at him. He'd, like, get whisked away, and then the next day at church, he would hold up his bloody shirt with holes in it and say that he healed himself from his gunshot wounds. And he would, like, rip open his shirt and show everybody his chest where there was no gunshots because he didn't actually get shot. No, I, I picked up on that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I hope <laughs> I made that clear. Did, did that Like, he through? never got shot. <laughs> yeah. He never got shot. He was faking it. But this would make his followers believe that people were after him and that they had to fight for Jim, you know, and fight for what they believe in because people were trying to take him down and all this stuff. So he was getting really obsessed also at this time with nuclear war, which a lot of people were afraid of at this time because of the whole Russia thing. You and know, he started, surprisingly, we're starting to have some worries about that with Russia now, too. Like, yeah, Russia no needs to get their shit together. Yeah. Well, history repeats itself. Yeah, well, seriously. So he started talking a lot about relocating the church somewhere that could survive a nuclear holocaust. Because obviously Indiana was going to be number one target <laughs> and wouldn't survive. Yeah, of course. That was kind of what I thought, too. They're like, oh, Indiana is a prime target for nuclear wars. Like, I know. Indiana is a prime place to go when there's 
a nuclear yeah. war. Like that's what I'm like. Doesn't everybody forget about Indiana? Yeah, moving to California or New York or Chicago, not your best moves. Yeah. So in the early 60s, he started traveling to find a new promised land to move his temple and his people to. And this is the first time he takes a trip to Guyana. And on this trip, he was scouting out places to move his church to. And he liked Guyana because they were English speaking and they were like kind of socialist leaning politically. Nice. He really liked it, but they were on the verge of like a lot of weirdness going on politically, like with they're trying to gain their independence from Britain and not being socialist anymore. And it was like a, it was really kind of messy. So he decided it wasn't time for them yet. Like it wouldn't work for them. So he reads this magazine article about the best places in the world to survive a nuclear Holocaust and decided to pack up his family and a couple of temple members and move to Brazil But he made no progress in Brazil. It was a total flop. He couldn't gain a following. But he hated to admit that he was wrong or that he failed. So he made up a bunch of stuff about a diplomat's wife who fell in love with him. And he had to sleep with her to get her to open an orphanage. It was like all bananas. But that's why he came back to Indiana, which was good because they were losing members while he was gone. Because people tend to leave a church when there's no leader. (laughs) Yeah. They do, they do. They don't want the blind leading the blind. Right. So back in Indiana, after he tells this batshit story about having to sleep with this woman that he hated to further their cause, he was getting sympathy for that. People felt bad for him that he had to sleep with this diplomat's wife just to try to get something done. And he started using that as like a segue into being open about how he has to sleep with men and women. <laughs> and it's all for everybody else's benefit. Not his? No. No, it's a burden to him. It's either to push forward their cause or it's something that the person needs. But it's a burden to him that he has to do it. Poor guy sleeps with everyone he sees and it's, you know, such a hard time for him. Yeah. So if this sounds like kind of a leap to you, it did to me too. This is probably one of the first (laughs) real big red flags that I would have been like, we're not going to church here anymore. I don't want to hear about my pastor's sex life. Done with this. But he's... Also getting more and more paranoid and angry at this time. And he was genuinely pissed off that while he was in Brazil for two years, they lost members. Like, he took that as a huge fuck you to Jim Jones. Like, a huge betrayal. So he wants to take his loyal followers, like the ones that stayed, and get the hell out of Indiana. Because he feels like Indiana slighted him by all these people leaving while he was gone. So this is when he... Hits the books again. He's like, okay, where's the next best place that I can think that my integrated congregation that's slightly communist and super socialist, where can we go that would be better than the Midwest of the United States in the 60s? California, here he comes, right? Yep. (laughs) Yep. He looks at this list again from that magazine and on the list is the Redwood Mountains in California. And he's like, bingo, the land of nuts. California. (laughs) Yeah. That's where we're going. So he packed up his family and like 70 devout members and put them all on buses and headed to Ukiah, California. I don't know where Ukiah is, but it doesn't sound like a place that um, needs like a cult. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Jim also didn't know where Ukiah was. He obviously didn't do a lot of research because 
this area now, and especially then, was not this liberal, rainbow-friendly place that he thought of when he thought of California. (laughs) They were not warm and inviting to his socialist, communist congregation. Or the fact that he brought like a hundred random people into their very small rural community. Yeah, he probably double or triple their population just yeah. Them like alone. I feel like they were m- probably more upset with that than they were with the fact that some of them were black and some of them weren't. I have a like, feeling it was a very big combination of both. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm like, <laughs> they do not like outsiders at all. It doesn't matter what color you are, and then if you're not the right color, that's a problem. Right. But Jim realized pretty quickly that he also needed a lot more money coming in in California than he did in Indiana. So he needed to recruit higher earning and well-connected members to be accepted and to thrive in this new situation they had going on. So Jones also liked followers that were ride or die, though. So he knew he could go to the oppressed and the poor, the homeless, the drug addicts. He could take them in off the street, clean them up, give them a place to live, send them to school or put them to work, better their situation. And they would follow him blindly because they were so grateful to him. And I mean, this was kind of a smart thing for him to do in the sense that it gained his following and it gained his following so much that people really high up in in politics started to take notice. Yes, exactly. And in California, it was much more of a commune than they ever had in Indiana. Like, they were all living and surviving together and building a community. Like, in Indiana, they all still kind of lived separately. They were just doing all the community stuff, you right. know? So over the next few years, they'd build this wonderful community that everybody was welcome, and they tried to recruit new members and build all these facilities. And then in 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Which was a pretty tragic event. Absolutely, yeah. But Jones decided to cash in on this tragedy. He packed up his people in Greyhound buses and headed to San Francisco to recruit members from prominent areas that were going to the memorials for MLK. So they would go to all these memorials for Martin Luther King at all these churches in San Francisco and try to recruit people. And he would show people like, hey, you like MLK? You'll probably like our congregation because... Some of us are black. Like, that was literally what he did. Wait till you meet the black Jim Jones. You're going to love him. Yeah. Yeah. He preached to the, you know, that our community is all integrated and it's all rainbows and sunshine and we love each other and blah, blah, blah. And it obviously wasn't rainbows and sunshine. He was working his people to the bone. One of his biggest things was making them work all day and then stay up half of the night listening to him babble on about nothing and then do it again the next day. They were running on almost no sleep which jim has done his whole life but most people don't do make them work 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 and get like four maybe five hours of sleep and then make them do it all over again you know like yeah these people were so devoted it was almost like a badge of honor to them that they were working so hard for the church that they didn't sleep for two days like but this is how jim would teach you know because when you're sleep deprived your brain doesn't function properly right that's the first thing of brainwashing is sleep deprivation like don't let them sleep and then you can tell them whatever you want you could rewire their brain either way this new commune had gone from a hundred people less than a hundred when they moved there to 500 people since they got to california and over the next few years it would grow to over three thousand people like that's a lot of growth really yeah. fast yeah 
in just a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, and, I, obviously averaging about a thousand members a year or a thousand more members a year. Like that's just, it's insanity. Like that's so many people. Yeah, it is. So once the church started to grow to that many, you know, he was treating the the wealthier prominent members a little bit differently than the ones who were living on the commune and because the ones who gave more money got more benefits and the ones who didn't give as much money didn't get as much benefits. It was like kind of a weird thing. And he started an inner circle of members that he called the planning committee. So he's now creating like classes of members, but still preaching the whole like everybody's the same communist socialist lifestyle. Yeah. But that's not what he's doing. So and this inner circle was really just rats. They tattled on other members who did things wrong so Jones could punish them. He also started having them collect blackmail on members so they'd be forced to sign confessions to things they didn't do or admit to things they did do but obviously don't want anybody to know about. And Jones would use this to get more money from wealthy members or get them to stay when he thought they might leave. You know, he'd be like, well, I have this that you probably don't want people to know about. You know what I mean? Totally. Oh, man. So... A lot of these members were either such devout followers or they had blackmail or they were brainwashed by sleep deprivation and isolation that they sold their homes and gave the money to the church and then moved to the compound. They were signing custody of their kids over to Jones or the temple like this whole community living like they were raising the children as a community. So they would sign over their children to these people, to Jim Jones and the temple, like custody, legal custody of their kids to the church. And then the church was raising their kids. That is crazy, crazy stuff. But people go crazy in churches like. You know, yeah. they get too far down and like, obviously this is a bit more of a cult than it is anything else. Like <laughs> people, yeah. people want something to follow and believe in and trust. hundred percent. And this guy had a good mission in the beginning. Like you understand where it started, but eventually these people had nothing left except the church. Like they'd given up their real lives and their money and their homes and their children. So it's like they had nothing. They had to stay. There was nowhere to go. You know, that's, again, how you help build a giant community of people who can't go anywhere. Right. (laughs) So by this time, he was openly having sexual relations with a lot of members, some willing and some unwilling. Oh, man, I feel so bad for him. I was going to say it was always a burden for him, though. Yeah, what a pain in the ass for Jim Jones. But sometimes they just needed it, Grant, to keep focused on the cause. They needed it. Thank goodness they had a leader like him to really, you know trudge forward. Yep. So while in California, a husband and wife named Larry and Carolyn Layton joined the temple and immediately they <laughs> were in his inner circle. Oh, never mind. <laughs> no. Yeah. The, they wish they left probably. <laughs> but they were immediately in his inner circle because Jones wanted Carolyn, like obviously physically. Such a burden for him. Yeah. No, no, this one wasn't a burden. This one was he actually wanted her. Oh, oh, well, finally. Yeah. And when Jones wanted something, he got it. So he told Larry, here's a new wife. I'm going to take yours. Thank you. The old switcheroo. And he just openly started being with Carolyn. He's still married to Marcy. Right. Like, nothing's changed in that front. And Nope. So now does he have two wives or did he ditch marcy yeah i mean not legally no no okay he won't let marcy leave i mean she really didn't like this but there was nothing she could do 
This affair was real open, and Jones and Carolyn even had a child together oh, named wow. Chemo. Chemo? Yeah. His, actually, his name, I think, is like Jim John, but they called him Chemo. Yeah, that's weird. Or John Jim, something. Ugh. Chemo, K-I-M-O. It's a Hawaiian name for Jacob, by the way. I did not know that. Because I know you're thinking chemo like chemotherapy. I thought about that after I said it. Well, I've known people named chemo before, maybe one or two. Yeah. So anyway, all of his affairs are real public by now because he didn't consider them affairs. It was more of a duty. Wait, 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 wait. Before you get any further, let's cut it right here. This is so long and we still have so much more to go. Let's cut it. Let's make it a two-parter even though we don't want to, but- we, I think we need to for everybody's sake. Yeah, especially me who has to edit all this. Yeah, that was kind of where I was going. This is going to be the probably the worst for you than anybody else. Yeah, so. All right, guys. Well, sorry about that, but we're going to have to pick this up next week. But the good news is we'll be back next week with the rest of this episode. Don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dough Project. Don't forget to visit us at our Instagram at From Crime to Crime, our TikTok at From Crime to Crime. Okay. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.